1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their
0: story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Football Writer's Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Dave Kidd of The Sun and Seb Stafford Bloor of Football 365. Welcome, one and all, to a winter break with a difference. They still play football. Four Premier League matches this weekend. The rest follow a week later. It at least gives us a chance to take stock. Liverpool will win the title, of course. According to Pep Guardiola, they're unstoppable. Now, he's taken inferiority really badly. I get
2: that he's a perfectionist, but a question has to be asked.
0: He's losing the plot though
2: well i think he's um he's he's remarkably always has been remarkably touchy towards criticism and most most managers are probably most people are and he and he um he certainly fits that bill um the idea that he locked his players into the in the dressing room for 50 minutes to tell them how good they were which is the line he came out with is probably a little bit you know unlikely um i think um i think guardiola um it, it, it's a ridiculous thing to say when you would expect them to beat aston villa and pick up the sixth out of the last seven domestic trophies to be handed out to be talking about a club that's slightly drifting and a manager whose future is is long-term future is uncertain but you do get the feeling that city need a major particularly defensive overhaul in the summer that you could argue they need to sign an entire back four um, to, you know, with Laporte, obviously, uh, you know, I then possibly need two other options at centre half and a couple of full-backs at the very least, and there are various other members of that squad who, who are not getting any younger. Um, it, is a, it is really a question now, I think, of whether Guardiola has the energy and the long-term vision for City to, to, to undertake that um, overhaul, because. Although they have been a wonderful team and they still are on their day a wonderful team, they haven't been doing it consistently enough, and they are so far behind Liverpool that that they need to they need a major restructure of the, uh, the squad in the in the summer. Mm. Is Guardiola that man? History suggests he doesn't tend to stay around for longer than four or five seasons. He has one more year on his contract. We'll see. You know, he generally will be a man who will honour honor a contract, but. Beyond that, I'd be surprised if he signed another one, another deal. Yeah, because
0: when he was at Barcelona, he basically spoke of his four years there as an eternity. Yeah. Direct quote. Um, there does seem to be a sense of stasis at City. Is he a reflection of that? Has he contributed to that?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I, when I watch City at the moment, um, I, see, I see vaguely what they were before, but aside sort of littered with mental errors. I think that was shown quite clearly yesterday. Um, of so the Zinchenko moment and some of the decisions his players made I feel like um, I don't even necessarily attribute this purely to Guardiola I think as, a, as an organisation there is this emphasis on the Champions League and I think even if it's subliminal even if it's unintentional um, over time that's going to be reflected in your domestic performances I think this is a, a mistake because I, I really Man City are, are are they actually going to be good enough to 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 compete with teams at the very top of the European game at the moment I mean the idea that they're sort of they're saving themselves for the Champions League and that you know this is the sort of the direction of organisational focus that will probably leave them empty-handed because at the moment, okay, Tottenham have a little bit of a psychological hold over them, but there are huge problems in defence, there are issues in midfield, the um, they look like a side who have been a little bit overthought, but also a group of players who seem almost bored of playing together. It's uh, staleness is the kind of the word we we throw around, and that feels very very appropriate at the
0: moment. Mm. Do you feel that?
2: their season hinges on that Champions League uh,
0: two yeah. legs against and Real Madrid
2: in, yeah i think for for city and weirdly <coughs> really for guardiola personally his record in the champions league by his ridiculous standards for you know for that's about 10 years now it 9 years he hasn't reached a final i'm pretty sure i'm right to say um and for city it's it's obviously the great it's it, you know it's it's the final frontier um they've only ever reached one semi-final when they were very poor against Real Madrid. I think they only lost 1-0 on aggregate, but they were remarkably poor and unambitious under <coughs> Pellegrini. They've got, you know, they've, 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 that's the great hurdle. That's, you know, I think last season we you know, were saying that Liverpool wanted more than anything to win the Premier League, City more than anything to win the Champions League, and they, they each got each other's, you know, um desired prize this year. You know, Liverpool are clearly going to win their their first Premier League title. I oh, can City make that break for the Champions <coughs> League? I I tend to agree with Seb in that it's very difficult to switch on and off. If you're if you I mean, they didn't play badly in either of their last two games, including the second leg against United, but they, they dominated games but couldn't score a goal, never mind never mind win. And I, I do think that it's a squad that does need freshening up. It's really surprising that they didn't bring in a centre half in in the summer. Even more surprising, they didn't do so in January. Um, at least at least one defender and a left back, I would say as well. We saw it against Zinchenko yesterday; he's not top draw. It, when you're on a, a yellow card like that, there, I didn't think there was actually a real desperate need to make that challenge. It was obviously a tactical foul. As, but you know, when you're on, when you're on a yellow and your team's on top, it, to- it totally changed the momentum of the game. I thought. Although having said that, the techier that game got, I thought the more likely Spurs were, were going to win it because Mourinho thrives on that sort of negative energy that was bubbling around in the first half, and you suddenly thought, "Hang on, Spurs are going to win this." But uh, it was the, obviously the, the red card that really did change things.
0: So, Sam, is it simply a case of him being outcoached by Jurgen Klopp? Uh, I, I'm, I'm loath to use that description because I,
1: I feel like he hasn't. I don't feel like that's a direct um, comparison. I feel like he hasn't got a solution for what Klopp does at the moment. I also think, interestingly, this is kind of why he can't bolt. I know Dave mentioned it already, like, he has this habit of short cycles and not staying in the same place for, for any great period of time. But if he were to leave at the end of this season, for instance, he is almost, in that kind of binary way, being defeated by Klopp. Um, what, I, what, I, what I think will be interesting is what his response is. So when City go into the summer, again, Dave touched on this, that squad needs freshening up. He needs enlivening. He needs a, for want of a better description, a new set of toys to do something with um, just to, to regenerate some ideas but also some enthusiasm in the football. Um, so if we're, if we're talking about this in a year's time and with City's resources and they're reaching the transfer market, he is still in the same position? Yeah, I'd say so. But for the moment, it's a, it's a process. He needs the opportunity
0: to react to what Liverpool have been this year. Mm. What is Liverpool's next phase Dave, you know, are they in the market for someone like a Kylian Mbappe? You know, there's been some talk of 253 million. We, with a player like that, with a, a marquee player like that, are Liverpool ready for a, someone
2: like that? Because everything they're doing at the moment is collective, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm saying they would be ready for it. I mean, they're Liverpool. They're you know six times champions of Europe. They're the runaway Premier League leaders and, and the champions of the world. So, I mean, they're, 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 they'd be perfectly big enough club to have Mbappe there, whether that's the sensible footballing thing to do, I I doubt, they have got their recruitment spectacularly, um, you know, they've they've done it spectacularly well in the last few years. When they've signed, you know, big, their big marquee signings, they've been on players they absolutely needed, Alisson and and Van Dijk in particular. Um, I don't think signing Mbappe is necessary, despite the fact he could be, you know, as good a player as there is on the planet, and probably will be very soon. I don't think, he is a player that will improve Liverpool because how, how almost how can you improve them? Mm. That front three has been outstanding for, for several seasons now. Um, I still think the midfield could get slightly better. <laughs> that's, that's the only thing I, could, I can think of. Um, it, it, it's 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 on perfection, as the results suggest, um, they 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 win every single game, even when they're not playing particularly well. Even the Wolves outplayed them for quite large spells the other week, and and you always felt Liverpool were going to win because they always do. Um, it's an extraordinary psyche they've got there under Klopp. Um, as for the next phase, I mean, that's always what we've been talking about City. They were obviously incredibly good the last two years in terms of the, uh, the beauty of their football, as good as anything we've seen in the Premier League. But after a certain amount of time, you know, of, you know, sustained success, you do need to regenerate at some point. I don't think Liverpool have got there yet. Liverpool's age profile is very good. There aren't many, there aren't any players in in their first choice eleven that that need refreshing in terms in terms of age. Um, it's an interesting one. I mean, you know, Ferguson always famously did want to bring in a player or two every summer, even when they were walking the league. I'm sure Liverpool will do the same, but I wouldn't say Mbappe at the moment.
0: Mm. What they've got, though, they improve. So if you look at, let's take as a, as a case in point, Joe Gomez. Mm. He, over the last two to three months, has been the best central defender in England. Yeah. Is that because of his latent talent and he's now free of injury, or is that because of the culture that Klopp has instilled at the club? I think it's both. I'd add a
1: third in there. I think playing it to Virgil van Dijk is a really, really good thing for Joe Gomez because I think. Um, I think a centre half is always is always prisoner to his circumstances. Who's his goalkeeper? Who's the full back outside of him? Who's the centre half inside of him? And Gomez is all the things you mentioned are absolutely true. Mike. Like he was, had terrible luck with injury, um, and that was really the obstruction to what you know hopefully will be a fantastic career. But you go into a situation which is very stable, alongside a partner who can recover from almost anything, and the security and confidence that I must give you as a player is amazing. It's like. Uh, you know, for for for, for, for someone like Alisson, when he came into the team, to have Virgil van Dijk ahead of him as well, now to have Gomez, the confidence that if you do make a mistake, there is someone to mop it up and to make it kind of irrelevant. That's very very helpful, and that the the result of that is is nearly always a kind of a, a, a spike in performance. And Gomez has been, Gomez has gone from someone who, okay, you might shuffle into sort of England's right back situ, right, right back position if you need to, to you're going to be starting at the European Championship. And arguably, I say he's had a much better season than Harry
0: Maguire. He's kind of he's England's first choice at the moment, really. Mm. And there's someone who was recruited for three and a half million pounds. Yeah. Yeah. You've got Maguire at eighty million. Yeah. Is he symbolising one of many symbols of what's going wrong at Manchester United at the moment? You know, we always ask who's won the transfer window. Mm. Well, it's certainly not been Ed Woodward, is it?
2: No, but I think Maguire has had a decent season. He's been okay, isn't he? Yeah. He's not, and I think he's, you know he's, he's been made captain, and I think that's a good decision. Even if it actually reflects badly on United's recruitment that a guy who's only been there for six months gets the captaincy of Manchester United, he still is a very good candidate as captain. He's a good leader. He's not been flawless. He never has been. He's always had a mistake in him. Eighty million was always too much. That's not Maguire's fault. Um, but so I wouldn't say he was a symbol of, of their decline. I thought, I'd say he was something they've got they've got pretty much right. I thought a couple of their in fact probably all three of their their summer signings were decent signings. It just shows how far they've got to go, that they're still, mm. you know, a distant fifth or sixth place or sixth I think in the in the Premier League. Um, yeah, I mean United's transfer window, Bruno Fernandez looks like a good signing already. What I've seen of him in Portugal and what I saw of him the other night, he he looks like he's a positive player. He, you know, he looks like he wants to shoot, and <laughs> there's been times in which Man United and you thought, why are they all so scared just to have a dig? Mm-hmm. Um, but Fernandes certainly hasn't got that problem. Um, Odin Ighalo is obviously someone that's you know, create, has been sort of great mirth about his his, his signing. I, I felt that if Spurs had signed him. Um, in in Kane's absence, everyone would have said, "Well, actually, it's not a bad stopgap signing, really, for Spurs. You know, it's better than not having a centre forward. It gives you that option." I think um, I not think it's the worst signing for United. Obviously, we expect them to go out and do more. And the United of old would have signed Haaland and got the best young striker in, in Europe, who can't stop scoring for Dortmund. You know, for two two or three games, he's got seven goals, I think, or mm, something. Yeah. It, um, But United are not at that level anymore. They can't necessarily just go out and attract those sort of players. Mm. Because there's a a horrible phrase in football, a body. And that is what Igalo
0: is, in essence. Get him in for six months. OK, so we have to pay £165,000 of his £300 that he's getting in China. Um, It's not his fault. But should Manchester United supporters expect more?
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, there's, there's two separate parts to this. Firstly... Odin Ngaro is actually a very nice story. Um, mm-hmm. He is a childhood Manchester United fan and he's fulfilling a dream. I, I think that's a, you know, a, one part of this. The other is uh, I feel as if Manchester United have had a long time to prepare for this. They made the decision um, in the summer to let Romelu Lukaku go, which irrespective of what happened to Marcus Rashford over the course of the season, is very similar to the Kane scenario at Tottenham. Like There is the risk, a risk of injury, there is a lack of cover in the centre-forward position, and someone should have done something about that. Actually, it seems as if the Lukaku decision was made a long time before the summer by Solskjaer. Didn't obviously want him at the club. Um, he, uh, he he made that particularly clear. And yet there wasn't there wasn't the attempt to bring in a player of any particular profile. The Harland um, situation presented itself, but there was no right. Let's have the the 20 year old player who okay, like Dave says, Man United can't just go and flash their crest at players anymore and, and just seduce them that way. But there is definitely the opportunity to bring in a player over the summer who can grow into a role, who can really understudy someone like Marcus Rashford, or compete in one of those sort of those front three roles. Because a lot of forwards these days don't just occupy one position, so it's actually even easier to fill that position. Um, and so, having done, I agree with Dave completely, I think Bruno Fernandes is a good player. I don't know quite how good he is yet because I'm not sure what Portugal is as a league. Um, but he looks good, I watched the game on Saturday. Um, But having done that, you've kind of, instead of of finishing a transfer window on a good note, you've kind of took yourself back to where you were a year ago. And it's kind of sort of reactionary muddled thinking. And you've got people saying things like, right, where's the director of football? Why is there not more focus on this? Who is is in our organisation who um, is tracking these problems, who's monitoring things like Marcus Rashford's workload? Um, And... Fairly. People people are right to ask those questions. And, yeah, so it's a kind of uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory situation, unfortunately.
2: The whole, the whole transfer window for me was, you know, the story of it was people not doing the bleeding obvious. Yeah. Tottenham needed a striker, didn't sign a striker. Yeah. Manchester United needed a, a better striker than a Chelsea goal. They didn't get one. Chelsea well, needed yeah. various different things because they had a band. You, you just expected Chelsea to go out and sign two or three players, left back, probably up front. Yeah. Didn't do it. Manchester City glaringly needed a centre-half. Didn't do it you sort of slightly wonder <laughs> what all these people on transfer committees or directors of football are actually doing with themselves at major clubs. Whereas Liverpool, when they've, when they've got, we need a centre-half, they sign a centre-half. When they need a goalkeeper, they sign a goalkeeper. Um, it's not rocket science. These clubs just haven't had the wherewithal to, to bring in the right players. Well, it's about you know, a strategic commitment to their craft,
0: isn't it? Mm. You know, If you look at Liverpool and Minamino, they've been watching him for 18 months. Um, it's interesting, you, you spoke about The director of football role at Manchester United said someone I know was approached about that role. Mm -hmm. And with the merest look at it, he said, they haven't got any conception of what that is. Mm -hmm. So why would I get involved? Now does that tell you everything about the football club? That they don't, you know, it's a nice shiny title, but they don't really know what it is.
1: Yeah, absolutely, because it's a... I I think what it suggests to me, and this is a little bit conspiratorial, is that the focus is not on performance, and it hasn't been for a really, really long
0: time. Well, they couldn't wait on Twitter on Sunday morning to start selling the Bruno Fernandes shirt. They were posting on Twitter, get your...
1: And by the time we finish this podcast, he'll have his own emoji somewhere. You know, this is is what Manchester United are. On the one hand, like, we all object to that because um, this is kind of new and this is a culture which has crept into the game. In reality, it's an imperative of modern football. These are the things that clubs do to, to create a, a financial advantage. At the same time, club of Manchester United's size, um, there is no real reason why those two things can't, why those two imperatives can't coexist. Why you cannot have this um, very prolific commercial enterprise alongside a properly run sporting entity, which is a not just a, a sporting director is not just a guy that. Sort of points a finger at a nice shiny football player. It is someone who oversees all kinds of departments. It's a, it's uh, analytics, it's medical, it's recruitment, it's, it's everything. It is a huge job, and it's. If this was a, if this was a Footsie One Hundred company, and you had some, you had a, a company that was known for producing a particular product, and there was no oversight of the production of that product, what would you say? And it's really no different. I know football is. Is, is a bit unique in the sense that everyone thinks they can do it and it's kind of, oh, well, you know, we've all played on Championship Manager and, and we you know, how hard can it really be? I just, I, I've never felt like Manchester United to take this seriously enough, at least not in this era, like this, this responsibility and, and all, the, all, the, um, all, all the functions of that position, they just have a fundamental disrespectful to me.
2: Mm. they like the Real Madrid-Galactico era without the Galacticos. The one <laughs> Galactico they've got is always injured and sulking. Mm. Yeah. And, and speaking of emojis, with Pogba, how do you see all that playing out? He'll leave in the summer and, and he'll do brilliantly because he's a brilliant footballer. Yeah. Um, and he should never have gone back there in the first place. Um, he has, I, I feel a bit sorry for him. I think he has been let down um, by the club, by the way the club's been run. Um, he's not. He's not a good enough player, who, apart from Ronaldo and Messi, who are to make an ordinary team outstanding. But he's a very, very good player, a world-class player. Um, and I think he'll go to Juventus or Real Madrid. And uh, I think it may, with Fernandes actually happening, if, if, if Pogba had been fit in January, they may well have done it then. Um, and I, I'd be, I can't believe he'd possibly be there next season. Mm. With Chelsea, you mentioned you know, they didn't get anyone in. Um,
0: where does that leave Frank Lampard? Well,
1: ideologically, Lampard's tied to what Chelsea continue to do. Like, he is, I mean, it probably suits Lampard to um, the club not to sort of immediately return to the days of, you know, uh, big ticket recruitment. Um, but as as much admiration as I have for the clutch of talent, players like Abraham and, and Mount and Rhys James, who I think it's one of the best of the lot, actually, to Morey, Um I, I think it's left Lampard slightly exposed because I think that he's now taking a risk with Champions League qualification. I don't necessarily think recruiting is his fault because I still, unbelievably, have no clear sense of what the recruiting dynamic is at Chelsea. I, I know that eventually uh, Patech will grow into that role, but as far as I can, I, as I understand it, he's kind of learning on the job and evolving as a as an employee in that sense. Um, I think it potentially weakens his hand. I think if. Um, if he if he finishes the season with Chelsea back in the Champions League I think that's more than good enough for a first year in the Premier League if he doesn't then all of a sudden given what that club has been for for 15 years given what they've grown used to I think it makes his job a little bit harder much
2: harder in fact what's your report card on him Dave? I think I think Lampard personally, rather than Chelsea as a club, would rather that the, the ban hadn't been lifted in the first place yeah. and, and then he could have carried on with the feel factor of the kids. When, when, when the ban was lifted, there was hope and expectation amongst Chelsea's support that they would, they would sign a couple of key players. Um, probably centre-half left back, I'd say a lot of people will be after more than a, a striker, but, yeah, another striker maybe. A goalkeeper. Uh, certainly a goalkeeper, a goalkeeper. absolutely, a goalkeeper. yeah. That was, a, mean, that was a brave sort of manager. It was, was yeah, as brave, as well. but almost it was almost becoming, you are watching <laughs> Chelsea and thinking, this guy never seems to save anything, really, <laughs> Um And, uh, yeah, it was brave, but it almost became inevitable, apart from the fact, you know, we know Cavalera is a bit, a bit flaky as well, so, yeah, a goalkeeper as well. Um, once, once the window... You know, once the embargo was lifted, you know, the fact that the Chelsea didn't do anything, then it's probably going to. Lessen that feel-good factor that was around that sort of reconnection we have with Chelsea's roots and the youth players coming through and Lampard coming back, and it was there was remarkable going to a lot of Chelsea games early in the season when Chelsea weren't winning at home, and everyone was really delighted with how it was going. It was quite refreshing, really. But now, but once that band's lifted, it's not Lampard's fault personally. He's not personally in charge of recruitment, but there's going to be a little bit more of an edge and frustration about Chelsea's support because they haven't been able to get transfers over the line in January when they were able to do so, particularly. If that gap with, with Spurs, in particular, maybe or, or United, starts to lessen even more because they, you know, they haven't got a big cushion now with fourth place. So, yeah, it's it's probably it's really not ideal for Lampard. But I, I think he's doing a decent job, um, and I think I think what's happened in January that d- doesn't help him. Yeah, I think there's a lot of goodwill towards him, isn't there? Mm, yeah, sure. Yeah, he's, yeah. Well,
0: what about his handling of uh, Giroud? <clears throat> he's just become a non-person, isn't he? I don't understand that. I mean, I. I, I think Jury is probably one of those people that has,
1: has grown a little bit better in his absence. Um, yeah. At the same time, uh, as a plan B, is there a better option in the Premier League? Like as someone that if you, you need to be a little bit more direct, if you need a... I mean, the Jury's actually he's got a little bit more craft than he's given credit for with the ball. Um, and I just, I've, I've watched Chelsea quite a few times. I've, watched quite a, I've been at quite a few of their games at home where they fail to deliver, where they've had that, that same problem each time where they, they just run into the teeth of an opposing defence, which is like tightly packed. Um, I haven't heard a decent explanation for it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's 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 one thing to say uh, Tammy Abraham is my guy. We're going forward with him. I'm all on board with that. But to you, it seems as if a Jury has actually been kind of forcefully disenfranchised. I mean, he's not. It's not like he's on the bench. He's actually been left out of squads now for I'm not quite sure how long it is, but quite a while, a significant period of time. Uh, and I I don't know. I mean, I I have. No explanation for that. I don't see the rationale behind it, certainly.
0: Mm. Can we us go back to goalkeepers, Dave, if I may? Um, you know, it's said that Frank Lampard fancies Nick Pope at Burnley, um, who has a credible claim to be regarded as probably England's number one at the moment.
2: Yeah. With
0: the European Championships in mind, where is Gareth Southgate's thinking going about his goalkeeper?
2: Yeah, it's uh, interesting. Always interesting with with England calls because you have such a, a, a long gap between the November break and the, and the March. It's like four and a half months without you know an England match, and, and during that time, the, the fluctuations in form and fitness of, of several players, many most players, mm-hmm. is, is is immense. So, I think he's got a lot of loyalty and a lot of affection for Pickford, but but Pickford, I would say, is probably less reliable um, than Pope. He likes Pickford's ability with his fees, distribution, but um, and he and he likes his character, um, but Pope's I think got a genuine chance of starting at the Euros now. Um, he's been very very solid. Um, I like the look of him. I'm not surprised Lampard's interested. Um, I mean Kepper was a huge amount of money, wasn't he, when he when when he came in '74 70, or something. Yeah, four. it's an extraordinary amount of money for a keeper who simply hasn't looked the part. And you know we. We, you know, we shouldn't forget the League Cup final fiasco yeah. last season. It was one of the most embarrassing things I've ever seen on a, yeah. football, on a yeah. football pitch. Um, so um, it hasn't worked out and Lampard's right to want to rectify it.
0: Mm. Yeah, speaking of goalkeepers, Hugo Lloris um, gave a certain solidity to Tottenham <clears> against <throat> City. Um, was that the result that maybe eased some of the angst about Jose Mourinho as well?
1: I think um, from the mood in the stadium... It was a result which signified the beginning of something. I think, I think it would be a mistake to portray that as a good Tottenham performance. Um, I've also seen uh, words like masterclass thrown around quite liberally. Um, nothing I saw yesterday really fitted that description because City actually played very well, they just couldn't finish, and Tottenham um, were pretty limited and still have some very obvious flaws. I think what happened yesterday was an emotional engagement, a kind of a, a collective buying in into whatever this Mourinho project is because it's. It's probably the, the most um, the most involved that stadium has been in a Tottenham performance since probably I'd say the uh, Champions League quarter final first leg against City last season. Um, that was a that was not turning point but a a building block. Um, I don't know. I, I still don't. I still don't know what Mourinho is at Spurs. I mean, it's all we're all dwelling at the moment in kind of superficial details, like sort of memes that appear on Twitter of him laughing about you know missed penalties and him and Zhao Sacramento running towards technical areas, that kind of stuff. And, and at the moment, I don't feel like there's a fully formed idea behind this Spurs team. There's some good players. Lethalso is a fabulous footballer. He's absolutely brilliant. Jaffet Tenganga is um, a lovely human being, seemingly, from his interviews and, and a great story. But he's doing ever so well in, in what is not his natural position. Um, so there, are, there is the beginning of something. What that something is, no idea that's the kind of insight you wanted me on
0: for. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are first impressions on, on Steven
2: Bergwijn? Yeah, I mean, he, relatively quiet. He, like he, a, made, a, he, made, he made a really good tackle yeah. early on, didn't he, from, off yeah. Walker. But it was a brilliant finish, an absolutely brilliant finish. And obviously, you know, it was Tottenham's first shot of the match in the 63rd minute and, it, and he took it. City missed, missed 14 chances before that I had 14 yeah. attempts and not, and not scored. He got one chance, and you know, brilliant chest down swivel, bang! Really, really good finish. And Dave, uh, so do you see
1: him yeah. in the first half when he about sort of 35 minutes in, when he was he was playing right on the near touchline next to the press box, mm. and he,
2: he just knackered, absolutely yeah, He yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> did, did look. It didn't look like it was going anywhere it's with exhausted. David really at that point. <laughs> it was, it, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The sort of intensity of the Premier League encapsulated, you know, for a new signing. But then, what, what a finish! And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I have my doubts about Mourinho long term. I, I, I don't think it felt. It, I agree about the connection, yeah, but I think that that connection came from the negative energy of the VAR and the anger, yeah, and yeah, everyone yeah. was up for it. And Mourinho th- does thrive on on that sort of the world's against us. And and that, I think the fact that the VAR decisions finally, in City Spurs games, finally went the other way in in City's favour kind of got everyone, you know, really up for it, uh, and that helped. I just don't. I don't see... that Tottenham Hotspur is a football club with a very specific historic tradition, which is very rarely veered away from. uh, The glory, glory game of Danny Blanchflower. It's very rarely straight straight, straight away from that. Mourinho is the absolute antithesis of that and always will be. Therefore, I don't see it being a successful long-term project. I still think you can always... Frustrate the hell out of the best teams in, in the world, and but I agree it wasn't. A, I don't think it was a masterclass. Uh, it, it was it was more to do with luck and a, and a feeling of this sort of uh, rightful in, righteous indignation about the, the VAR decisions um, than than any sort of great you know tactical nouse of Mourinho's yesterday. Yeah. So in that context, how important is Wednesday's FA Cup tie against Southampton? Is it
0: critical to the season? Yeah, absolutely. Because at the moment, Tottenham just needs to start winning. Like the more games you
1: win, the more belief there is. Um, I think you need to, yeah, you need to create some sort of momentum. I don't, I don't even think it's important in the sense of right. Let's go and win a trophy. It's a let's get this habit back of you know yesterday's game. Uh, it felt like a little bit of an outlier. I don't, I don't, I don't see it necessarily instructing anything because it was all so random and weird. It's one of the most bizarre games of football I've seen all season. There was no real rhyme or reason to it. Um, I feel like. They have to get back into the habit of knocking over teams like Southampton, the sort of the automatic victories, um, irrespective of what competition that's in and what it leads to. You need to be in a position where you keep clean sheets, you score goals, you ha- create chances, and then you move
2: forward because that was
1: the great virtue of the,
2: of the Pochettino era. In I, th- I think for Mourinho in particular, it's about winning trophies. Oh, <laughs> and sure. he will look good on his yeah. TV and, quite frankly... Uh, he, he's, he's in tune with, with fans of Spurs and every other club there. It's fans want to win yeah. domestic knockout trophies. It's, it's, it's the bean counters who don't necessarily care about it because it's not that profitable. But Mourinho wants that. That's one respect where he is in tune with the glory, glory thing because mm-hmm. the glory of winning trophies is something that, he, that feeds, obviously, his ego and his CV. Do you think he'll get them to trace down Chelsea? It's possible, but without Kane, I think unlikely. Um, without a centre-forward, I think unlikely that they'll be able to do it consistently enough. But Chelsea are vulnerable. I quite fancy Wolves, but I quite fancy I quite, Wolves. The yeah. Wolves are the best team I've seen yeah. out of that clutch of teams who could finish fourth. Completely it's whether team. they have the depth when they get back into Europa. You know, that, that's just, they seem to have struggled with that, uh, with juggling those earlier in the season. So we'll see. Mm. We shouldn't overlook the team that actually
0: is fifth, Sheffield United, which is extraordinary yeah. when you think about it. They had a good transfer window. It seemed to me with um, you know Sanderberg coming in from Genk. Um, he seems born for the Premier League. So, I mean, you, you could, if
1: you if you were to build a Premier League midfielder in a uh, in a, a laboratory, you'd end up looking like that. Six foot four, good feet, progressive, physically capable of matching anything that you find in the league. Just go back quickly. I, I'd like to put my hand up for Dean Henderson as England goalkeeper. I think he's been yeah. brilliant this season. I know he's made a high profile error or two, but he is. Um, I think he'll be the natural successor to to Jordan Pickford before much longer, as and when he you know goes back to United. Um, but yeah, Sheffield United, I, I, I think Chris Wilde is one of the great stories this season. I think, um, you know, you, when, when, when teams get promoted into the league, there's always that sort of two or three months where it's all novelty and they work hard and they, they knock over a couple of big teams and people over-celebrate them. In this instance, what they've shown is an ability to do that, absolutely, to rattle a few cages. They're fundamentally good side, not just in in the sense of their their integrity. They're good to watch. They're really well-built. And Berg. I was talking to um, uh, I was talking to uh, Count, Twitter, I followed, uh, Blaze Pod, who you know our Sheffield United podcast, and um, because I, obviously the, one of the, the, the sort of the, the biggest virtues of that team has been their midfield of um, Norwood, Fleck and, uh, and Lundstrom. So I'm interested in long term how that dynamic is disrupted and what what Berg will bring that that um, someone like Lundstrom hasn't been able to, because I think he's been great. He's a little bit of a, a tailing off recently. But all three of those players have been magnificent this season. Um, But yeah, I I know I I said to you before we started recording, Mike, I love the idea that he went there, that he didn't just say, I'm going to go and sit on Chelsea's bench for three years and then get loaned somewhere or whatever. He goes, I I will play for, um, I will go to a uh, a sort of an an, an unfashionable club, a newly promoted side, and I will buy into what Chris Wilder, who... Probably different from sort of. Uh, it's, it's probably for you know. He's not. He's not a name, is he? He's not a. He's not a, a Lampard or a you know um, or a Guardiola or a Mourinho. He's someone that you know clearly Berg has sat down and listened to and learnt about his vision for the future of Sheffield United. And he's bought into it. And it's great. And um, yeah, I can't. I can't wait to see what Sheffield United do next. Actually. Mm. With I what, think
2: with Wilder, if he looked like Marco Silva, he'd be managing Arsenal or Tottenham by now. To completely honest, agree. Yeah. completely that, agree. that's that. a little bit of a sort of, sort of thing. Allardyce might have said about himself a few years ago, and I, and I wouldn't necessarily agree with it about Allardyce. I think Wilder's work, body of work, is outstanding. Absolutely, absolutely outstanding throughout the leagues. Because a, lot of the, the praise, really a really. lot of the praise,
0: a lot of the praise for him has been pretty patronising. Yeah, obviously.
2: and they're not. It's not as if they just. It's not as if they're an effective long ball team. If they were another Stoke or Burnley or something like that, they're not. They play some really good stuff. Yeah. But it's it's really well structured. It's it's exciting to watch it's expressive a, as well is, isn't, isn't it a, absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, yeah you enjoy you enjoy watching them and the, and they've sustained it over the course of two-thirds of a season now and Wilder's you know Wilder's record is, 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 is magnificent if he looks and sounded differently he would be uh, you know one of the biggest clubs in the world because that record is that good mm. they're at
0: home on Sunday to Bournemouth Yeah, two clubs traveling in different directions mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, Bournemouth won at the weekend, which surprised me a little bit. Um,
1: I don't know. I still feel as if once Bournemouth get a couple of players back, particularly David Brooks, um, then they will pull clear because Brooks is a super player and his injury has really hurt them. Lloyd Kelly as well, who was you know one of their big signings over the summer, really really promising left back. Um, but in terms of, uh, it feels more like Bournemouth have reached the end of whatever the Eddie Howe era is. It feels like. Eddie Howe is still a very capable coach, and he will continue to be for goodness knows how long. But it feels as if there isn't quite as much energy left in the journey. Um, and I think I mean, it wouldn't surprise me to see a parting of ways in the in the summer. But Sheffield United, there's an originality to them. I think I think Eddie Howe and Bournemouth have become one of these clubs that sort of they have a certain profile of player that they want to recruit, which is good. It's good to have a kind of a model. Sheffield um, United are just a bit more, a bit bolder. Like, there doesn't seem to be any kind of inhibition. Yeah, they'll take a chance from Ravel Morrison when to be fair a lot of clubs would just say that's, I don't want that problem uh, Jack Rodwell too ditto given his appearance in the Sunderland documentary Morrison's soon gone to Morrison has but it's, it's like the intent isn't it Mike it's the kind of it's even like going back to Sander Berg it's the idea that you fancy a chance of getting a player like that someone that's been in been connected with Man United and Chelsea you say I'll, I'll have a go at that even a lot of clubs could literally afford to pay him and sign him but not many would say no we'll actually go and go and do it And I think that makes it, that gives all neutrals a little bit more enthusiasm for what Sheffield United are. Bournemouth we've kind of got used to and it's plateaued. Hasn't held our attention quite the same way.
2: There's a glass ceiling, isn't there, for clubs of that size. And we saw it with Charlton under Kerbishley, we saw it under Fulham, we saw it with Swansea. In their different ways, they all got to that stage. There's smaller smaller Premier League clubs finishing consistently in the top half for three or four years. But there's nowhere... There's nowhere to go almost. I mean, I know anything can happen when Leicester's win the league under Ranieri, but that's, you know, once in a lifetime. Those clubs, where do you go once you've finished 7th, 8th, 9th consistently and been this great model of a well-run club? It's things just naturally, you know, if you, can't, if you can't improve and you can't go forward, you, at some point you're probably going to end up slipping backwards. Mm. Can you say the same thing about Crystal Palace? Now, they're at, uh,
0: against Everton in the BT Sport match on Saturday. Mm. Roy Hodgson is obviously very frustrated. They had a, mm. a terrible window. Yeah. No one, uh, you know, apart from uh, Tosin it's going in there on a six month loan, yeah. he sounds at the end of his tether yeah. with what's going on at that club.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's, he's overachieved, as he, as he always does uh, at smaller clubs. He, he's done a very similar job to what he did at Fulham West and, and West Brom. Yeah. For them, particularly spectacular because of the Europa League run. But he, basically, what he does is he, he overachieves at clubs like that and, and gets them into mid-table and well safe of relegation. Um, and, and it's not often wonderful to watch. Um, it's it's always pretty tight at the back. It's you know um, it, it's it's the old two banks of four, and and, and we've seen it for years and years. Um, but he's a master at doing it. Um, but he needs a bit of help from from upstairs. Um, so, I really the, the the Ferguson, isn't it? The the, the fullback. Nathan He was really good. a really good player. That was it was very close. It must have been very frustrating that that one collapsed late on. Um, but yeah, it's it's a club that needs uh, needs a bit of re-energising. Uh, not necessarily the manager, but he is 72, I think. Yeah. 70, uh, you know. At some point, <laughs> you know, I, I really thought after England that would be him done, and I'm really always massively impressed with. The sense of energy that keeps him out there, and he is very much a hands on training ground coach day in, day out. That, that he never seems to tire of it, and, and, and he, he never seems to tire of drilling players in the same way that he has been doing for decades. Yeah, they're at Everton. You saw Everton on
0: Saturday. Mm. Um, how did they win? I have no
1: idea. At- <laughs> I, I, honestly, it's one of the um, great respect to them for their comeback. Uh, it was very dramatic but I don't have a single I didn't have a single positive thing to write about it because I didn't it seemed to it was all informed by what Watford were incapable of doing. I mean the two set piece goals they conceded before half time were, were just nonsense. And the third goal like it's one of the, I mean I I understand Watford's situation the importance of trying to trying to trying to take 3 points from that game with you know West Ham being you know being dragged back by Brighton and everything. But um you just there's no defence for it. It was, It's interesting because obviously uh, I think they came, they, they came to that game unbeaten in seven games or one defeat in seven or something like that, which is a big uptick under Nigel Pearson. It was, it's interesting just how quickly all the old neuroses came flooding back as soon as those two goals went in. Because they were great. For 40 minutes they played really well Watford. Um, and Everton, who looked like they're probably going to be safe, they, they looked almost disinterested. And at that point you would say there's, just, there's not enough heart in this team um, for uh, a comeback to be to be even possible. Um, but it happened and Nigel Pearson did that thing in his press conference where he says the right words but in a weird sort of tone where you think he might be about to leap over the desk and <laughs> punch whoever asked the question. <laughs> Do you want to say, actually, there was um, um, Speedo Mick at, uh, at Vicarage Race. He's fantastic. He's, uh, that, if, for people who don't know, that's a proper hero. let say he's 650 miles into his... Uh, into his walk from John uh, O'Groats to Land's End. Uh, from and Land's End. And I think he's raised, like, 170 grand. And he's, all doing, he's doing it in speedos as well. Looked absolutely <laughs> freezing, Mick, and <laughs> probably about £10 lighter than, than his Twitter <laughs> profile picture. But he's, uh, he's doing amazing work. He's, uh, it's, it's always good to see him at, at football. It's brilliant. Yeah, and
0: he was well-received by both yeah, sets of was, fans, yeah. wasn't he? he was. Yeah. Uh, which actually sums up Watford as a fam- you know, family club. You know, that we use that sometimes as a bit of a cliché. Is that going to be enough...
2: That sort of feel-good factor is that is that going to wane as the season goes on? Do you think? Well, I mean, it helps that Vicarage Road is it's a really good place to watch football. Yeah. nowadays, better than it probably ever has been. Actually, it's nice and enclosed and tight. It's got a good feel about it. Um, when when the momentum is with them, as it as it certainly was in the start of Pearson's reign until you know probably until this weekend. Um, they've, they've had a couple of defeats, haven't they, recently? And you just feel when once that momentum starts to slip, they've had that surge, got themselves out of the bottom three, and now they're. It, 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 they've just—if you lose that momentum, you wonder because the club, you know, the team wouldn't have been way adrift at the bottom if if they were outstanding. They, they've, they've been punching above their weight under uh, under Pearson. They were punching below it under under uh, Sanchez before, uh, Flores before that. So um, I, I think they've probably got enough individual quality there. And I'd, I always like the, the, the midfielders, um, yeah. Decore and uh, and They Those sort of players, Capoue, in, in, in a, a team of Watford size, I think they're they're, they're really really good players that you, that can drag you over the line in a relegation battle. I think they'll probably just about it out of it. Just that is a worry. The nature of the nature of Saturday's game that you can just lose that momentum. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Pearson knows all about the momentum of that late Leicester run to stay up the year before the title season under Pearson was extraordinary. And it was so much about momentum and belief that when you lose it, you then do start to fear maybe a little.
0: Mm, Given that they've got to do something at Brighton on Saturday, what do you make of Brighton under uh, Graham Potter? A bit of a mixed bag. I like the way they play. Like, I've um, I've
1: got all the respect in the world for Chris Heaton. I think he's a lovely guy and he, he did great things to keep them up. And I feel like he's been... Disrespected a little yeah. bit by um, by by losing his job. That being said, I feel like there's a there's been an obvious departure both in the in the style and the nature of the recruiting. Um, obviously, uh, potter has been going through some pretty difficult personal circumstances, mm. and I feel whilst I didn't know that before, looking back at what's been going on at the club and the sort of the sequence of results, perhaps that's bled into to performances and um, you know un- completely understandably. Um, but I was really humbled by that they, they come back at west ham you just think does the does, does do brighton last year do they have the gears to play like that in pursuit of a, a two goal deficit probably not so i think they're a more dexterous side i think they're i think they're interesting i think um i like um i like the idea of having someone like dan ashworth there because i i think he, he sort of represents a um the kind of the pursuit of a younger type of player as sort of a, a a greater longevity in in recruiting so interesting. They um, they they're not just here to to stabilize themselves and finish seventeenth every season. They've got a kind of an ambition to to grow and develop and evolve. And yeah, you know, it's a good enough reason to watch them.
0: Mm. When we talk about ambition and Newcastle, <laughs> we just think about Mike Ashley and his determination to get top dollar for his football club, or what he perceives to be his football club. Um, they've had a poor window again. Um, they've got Oxford in the cup. Again, a little bit like Spurs. Is this a game that they have to win to rejuvenate their season?
2: Yeah, I mean obviously Newcastle's a, a you know, far too big a club not to have won a trophy for four decades no five, five de- decades, five decades. Bears no, Cup yeah. in sixty nine, yeah, so over five decades. Um, and as we were sort of mentioning about Mourinho and Spurs, you know, there's there's huge value there in terms of even a cup run, they're minor the minority winning a cup. Um, for Newcastle support. I think Bruce seems to get that. I think there's been times under Ashley that they've, they've, they really have thrown away the cup and put out very weak sides. Um, but yeah, Oxford away will be tough for them. Um, I, I think, um, yeah, I didn't expect them to go bananas and spend loads of money in January. I thought, I think Rose is a, is a good signing for them. I think mm. it was a good signing for, for Spurs. It was a good deal for, for Rose, for Spurs and for Newcastle, that one, he, he, you know, they, they didn't seem to want him there. Um, he needs football to try and get into the England squad, and and he'll, I think he'll do a good job for Newcastle if he, you know, gets himself fit and playing every week. Um, so I thought that was one decent upside for Newcastle. Um, but yeah, you sort of fear for that in that Oxford tie that it's the sort of one that they've tended to lose over the years. I think there's a little bit more focus on on the cup in a positive way, and the fact that they're not. Although they're not entirely safe, they, they're much more safe than they normally are at the stage of the season. They normally mm. start off back very badly and, and end up, you know, having a scrap for the second half of the season to stay up, don't they? And, uh, and that, that's not the case this year, so they should be able to focus more on the cup. I think um, I'm right in saying that they've got another lower league division, uh, league team if they were to beat Oxford. So there's a real path uh, towards the quarterfinals there, and, and that's something Newcastle haven't had for many years.
0: Mm. I just want to end, Seb, if I may, by looking at the winter break. Yeah. Pretty underwhelming, to be perfectly honest, at the moment. Um, how can it be refined so that it actually does the job that it's meant to do?
1: It has to be a proper winter break. Because it's not, though, is it? It's like it's sort of a winter break, which is like a, a dumping ground for replays if you need it. I mean, I think um, the idea is to sort of to create a, a period of 13 uninterrupted days, whereas in reality, like, it's not sacrosanct. You know, if, if the if the determination is to actually have a winter break and to extract the benefits other European leagues do from it, other European clubs and players, then you actually have to make it one. You know, it, it's kind of well, we want to have one, but not in a way which interrupts our TV schedule. So we're going to put, you know, we've got, I think we've got five television games coming up on the, of this weekend, five television games the next. So you kind of, it's like a it's a compromise between what's always worked and what television companies and the league and the clubs want and the revenue and this kind of, this increasing issue with the health and performance and condition of players. It's too much football. It's just too much football. It's inarguable. I don't know what the solution is, that, is to that because I'm not smart enough. And then it's not my job to find a solution for that. But, inarguably, there is a problem with how much players are playing and what stresses we're placing on them. It's got to... Uh
2: because they're falling over like flies, flies aren't they? Yeah, You know, there's yeah, Sterling. You know, he's yeah. the latest one to go? Yeah. I think... Um you know, you've got to scrap cup, cup replays. Um, for me, um, they, they make cup upsets you know, less likely rather than more likely than having a shoe at home. It goes against the grain. It's just, you've, you know, I, I do sympathise with Guardiola, who keeps winning the League Cup and then talks about wanting to abolish it. I think maybe regi- that would be a way of, of, of finding more breathing room in the overall fixture list, which would then allow the FA Cup to breathe more and yeah. um, give it a better focus because, it, you know, there's, there's always the problem with the Cup that it's the third round comes the, after five Premier League games are played in ten days or, you know, mm. in well, the stop busiest stop time of the stuff. year.
1: Stop Stop, 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 Sort of creating, like, 90-team Club World Cups and, yeah. and uh, yeah, adding new layers to international yeah. football and mm-hmm. making players travel for thousands of miles across time zones mm. once a month. Mm. It's got to be... Eventually, the pursuit of money has got to be tempered by recognition of what is being mm. done to the game. Mm.
0: Well here's an idea Scrap one of the early international breaks Play the FA Cup third round on New Year's Day And for heaven's sake Give the players a proper rest Thanks for joining us here On the Football Writers Podcast